Good morning. It is Wednesday, Wednesday. So uh, we're continuing to work on Soren Kierkegaard's uh, book, uh, moving through his preface into the actual chapter one. Purity of heart is the will one thing. Uh, Douglas V. Steer is the translator. Harcher Torch Books, and I bought this online as a used book. It was used, but it had no markings in it, so I can... I can be fine with a used book as long as it hasn't been torn up by somebody who's been uh, indiscriminate with their markings. Uh, sometimes it's good if somebody's read a book and they were thoughtful about it that they've underlined or highlighted some passages. Uh, but for the most part, I want to make those decisions. And I'd encourage you, if you like this podcast, to do a couple things. First of all, uh, Princeton University Press is having its summer sale this week until the end of the week, I think until Friday. Uh, you need to check that. And uh, they're offering half price on most of the books in their catalog, including Soren's uh, writings. And it's free shipping, which can be pretty substantial if you order a bunch of books. And uh, a couple of months ago, you know, I was looking at a few, to buy a few uh, Soren uh, Kierkegaard books. And I already kind of know this anyway, but I came to realize the amount of books that Princeton University Press had available um, about um, Soren's writings and, and Soren's writings specifically, the ones he wrote. And although most of the translation was done by the Hongs, that's not entirely true. I saw that yesterday with a little bit more detail, that they did have other translators work on other uh, books from Soren. Uh, the Hongs were prodigious, though. The, the, they had a very long life, and they were dedicated to translating Soren's works from uh, Danish to English. Uh, so I had sent an email probably two months ago uh, to Princeton University Press saying, hey, I don't expect free books. Of course, I would love them if they were to give them to me, but I didn't want to pretend like I expected or was thinking they would give me free books. That's unreasonable. Uh, about two months ago, uh, so I had signed up for the newsletter. I had sent them an email asking if I could get a discount on books, and I never heard back. So I uh, just taken a bunch of screenshots of the books that I wanted, which was most of the catalog from Soren. And uh, then I got an email last week with a, just a general uh, announcement that they were having a summer sale of half off uh, books and. Uh, with free shipping. So I sent another email at this time uh, after two months of waiting, another email this time specifically, asking the question if that applied to like a, a volumes of purchases, not just like one book or two books, if I could apply this equally to a lot of books of Soren's. And I heard back and the person said, yes, uh, it does apply to all the books that you can purchase. I guess they had removed a few books, not necessarily Soren's, but other people's books that weren't available at that discounted rate. Now, what happens in these kind of specialty college presses in particular, they're not necessarily considered commercial trade. Uh, they are an academic press. Uh, so if any of you went to college, you know how expensive um, textbooks can be. I think like my high school was moving away from buying textbooks because it's just such a huge expenditure and there's ways of getting access to knowledge and information it doesn't require kids to have textbooks. Every one of the students in our building had a Chromebook. Um, so teachers were 
slowly moving away from textbooks because you always had to replace your textbooks. There was a cycle. There was kind of a, a way to do that within the school system. Um, but you know how expensive a textbook can be. I mean, you can spend ninety dollars for a textbook, and it's thin as thin as a you know thin as a little uh, wafer. I think it's made of gold or something. Uh, so academic press books tend to be more expensive. You can find obviously Soren's books by Princeton University Press and others on Amazon, but the ones from Princeton University Press are typically pretty expensive. Uh, and they want to drive the commerce for the sale of their books to their website, to Princeton University Press versus Amazon. There's no doubt that they would try to keep them off of Amazon uh, in terms of the uh, the profit they make and the return they make for their investment. Now they print on demand, which is the way a lot of um, a lot of printers work these days. The, a lot of publishers they don't print. A huge amount of books, unless they're expecting to make make a lot of money, they'll, they'll kind of print on demand for more selective titles, and it comes through Ingram Publishing that does a lot of a lot of this print on demand. The technology is such that they can just print these books off and send them away, so they don't have a, an overstock or trying to get rid of books that they uh, they thought were going to sell and didn't most of the time. And there's times they do read the market wrong and have books they have to sell, and that's where. Places like Book a Million come from and all that, where they, they put books on on sale. So if you want to get some Soren books, I'd really encourage you because of going to the source. Um, don't don't rely on this podcast, obviously. I'm, I'm not a Soren uh, authority. I know more about Soren than 99% of the United States populace, I'm sure. But that doesn't make me an expert because it's just there's such a lack of knowledge about Soren in general. Uh, but there are people that know a lot more than me, but they didn't start a podcast for whatever reason. I think they tend to be old school, a lot of this crowd. People that were very influenced by Soren Kierkegaard probably are on the older side, my age or older. I, I just don't think Soren's gotten a lot of press recently. So go to uh, Princeton University Press, PUP, and uh, look at some Soren Kierkegaard books or other books that you'd like to purchase and do so. Um, this is just an appetizer. I try to be faithful about what I share because I'm reading directly from the book and I'm proceeding through it chronologically and page by page as Soren wrote it. I suppose he wrote this. He might not have wrote it straight through, but once it's in a book, it's kind of chronological. You just read straight through page one to whatever. Uh, so I'm reading actual stuff from Soren. Uh, so that's helpful. But this is just an appetizer to whet your appetite. So go do that. Uh, get some books, uh, either through Princeton University Press this week or otherwise. Uh, but the books are half price, but they're not inexpensive. I bought 24 uh, Soren Kierkegaard books, 24 books I didn't have. There's a few I decided not to get for various reasons. Um, but I uh, I went all out, and it was, it was a you know, good chunk of change. And I don't have any expectation that God's now going to prosper the podcast or somebody owes me something because I made this investment. I, I am reading uh, Soren Kierkegaard because I love his writing and I get a lot from it. And also that I like to do this podcast because I find it enjoyable to talk about it. Uh, and if other people want to join in on the train, that's all the better. Um, but I have no expectation to God or to others, to you, the listeners, like, oh, I made this huge investment. Now you have a responsibility to, you know, to appreciate my work. That's not how it works. I offer this stuff freely, and I really um, like doing this, uh, and I hope to continue to do it. It does give me a sense of purpose. Uh, 
I'm not totally purposeless outside of this podcast, but this is one thing that I'm doing that really appeals to me in terms of my training and my thinking and my love of books and my love of philosophy and my love of uh, theology and of God and trying to make sense of it in a complicated and confusing world. I mean, Soren's really helped me uh, develop my sense of independence and individuality. I'd really need that. Uh, when I was younger, I played a lot of sports, like I've talked about before, and I was very dependent on the approval of other players, of other um, coaches, of the, of, the, of the audience, of the status that it can made. And it became a real burden. I think one of the reasons I blew my knee out wasn't just merely physical. I think there was a lot of psychological pressure and weight being put on me because I, I put so much on it. Like I was looking for basketball to redeem me as a person. Sports, you know, athletics. And um, there's reasons for that because I had learning problems. Um, my self-esteem and self-identity came through sports because they found out even though I have mild cerebral palsy on the left side of my body, I was actually a pretty good athlete. And I would have been even better if I didn't have this affliction. Uh, but I wound up being big and pretty athletic and decent at certain parts of basketball. So I was putting a lot of my identity into being an athlete. And when that when that crumbled, it was um, I went from thinking I had it all figured out to thinking that I didn't have very much of life figured out. And that was the process that God used to humble me. And it was really good, but it was really hard. And two knee operations and... Uh, I was still trying in my 40s to be the star of whatever basketball league I was a part of, and it was some rec league. And there were good players in the league, but I'm like, I'm still I'm still holding on to the idol, man. Still want to redeem myself by putting a stupid basketball into a hoop. And I just decided to stop playing because I just couldn't handle it anymore. I said, it's time for this idol to die. So I never have played basketball since uh, probably when I was about 45 or so. But I was playing in a league of young guys and was doing pretty well until the last team I was on that was composed of a bunch of Christian misfits. There was only one good player on the team outside of myself, and these guys were just clowns. They couldn't play basketball, and we just got rooked. And everybody was super selfish, too. It was just the worst part about being on a team that I couldn't stand. So first of all, get yourself some books of Soren Kierkegaard. Number two, share this podcast with a couple friends. Uh, the way things grow, like in business, if somebody's in, like, contracting where they build porches and decks for people or plumbers or you know your accountant or tax people or your hairstylist you know there's some place for official marketing like using the uh, social medias and uh, the newspapers and the radio and television there's a reason why people do that it works um, but the best the best way for something to grow a business and uh you know an idea whatever is for people to share it to feel like hey this resonates with me this is helpful and i know other people that you care about might like this now i know that my the shoe that i present to people doesn't fit every foot i already know that like at school um i was pretty popular with the kids but some kids really really loved me and some kids really didn't and then i had a large amount of people in the middle kids they were like he's cool whatever he's fine but i wasn't i wouldn't be their favorite educator i wasn't their worst educator for sure so in general i had a pretty high approval rating uh but i did have some detractors because uh, i have a strong personality and I have strong opinions but some kids absolutely love that and that's the audience that i want to find it's a big world out there 
Um, so I wouldn't ask like you have to put it on Twitter or put it on you know, the IG or Snapchat or Facebook because that could expose you to some blowback from people like, that guy's stupid. I can't believe you like him. But I, again, I don't really care. People could say that about me. They're going to get some pushback, but I'll fight back a bit. I always do. I try to avoid getting in arguments with people that don't have any sense, though. That's not particularly useful. Uh, so share this podcast with a couple friends that have some theological interest. They don't necessarily have to be Christians, but they have to be willing to at least have some of an open mind if that's possible. And be willing to listen to somebody who's more of a centrist with some strong convictions outside of that centricity. I don't believe this central view is right all the time. I am a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That's pretty narrow-minded, but it's secure. Um, it's not narrow-minded, but it's a, it's a, it's a secure uh, path. It's a strong path. It's a powerful path, but it's not broad. Uh, but I'm centrist in a lot of things because I, I realize that I don't live in a Christian country, and I want people to experience God's goodness and God's grace. I really do. Because I think people have a lot of bad feelings about God, and understandably so. There are things that happen in this world that are very hard to figure out. But I want to try to share my perspective to try to pull some of that apart to help people understand things. So, we're going to get into today, uh, nothing unites like a common enemy. And it ties into the preface that I wrote the, uh, uh, not a, that I read the other day from Sorn. And it uh, talks about where he... In his, in his preface, he talks when a woman makes an altar cloth. And uh, let me just read this again. Uh, sorry that I'm redundant on this, but I wanted to go back over this because I think there's something here I want to kind of work on a little bit and draw out a little bit more. When a woman makes an altar cloth, so number number one, number two, buy a book, buy some Soren books from Princeton University Press or elsewhere, get, get, the, get it from the horse's mouth. Uh, number two, share the podcast with a couple friends by text or you know, email, or if you feel bold enough, if you really feel bold, yeah, put it up on, on the on the socials. Uh, but be willing back for some people to <laughs> blow back. I'm not expecting 100% applause on that. Uh, but I would love that because I think this is the way the podcast is going to grow. And I don't want my, um, my ego to be tied to this podcast. Now, it's going to be regardless. We all have egos. It's just the way it is. Uh, but I don't want people to feel like I'm looking to bolster my sense of identity or my sense, or I need it. I mean, I guess I do in a way, but I don't want to be hungry that way. I want to offer this freely, and if it means my hand gets uh, kissed occasionally, that's awesome. Or if it gets bit, that's awesome too. That's just the price of jumping on the floor and dancing. That you're gonna, you're gonna get some criticism. Uh, I want the music to be loud enough that it overwhelms and overpowers and out out louds the critics you know there's going to be critics out there regardless so those two things this one should be mindful of but back to uh, page 27 on this book and the preface man that's like there's a lot before this uh, preface boy (laughs) this translator had something to say when a woman makes an altar cloth so far as she is able she makes every flower as lovely as the graceful flowers of the field as far as she is able, every star is sparkling as the glistening stars of the night. She withholds nothing, but uses the most precious things she possesses. She sells off every other claim upon her life that she purchased the most interrupted and favorable time of the day and night for her one and only, for her beloved work. But when the cloth is finished and put to its sacred use, then she is deeply distressed if someone should make the mistake of looking at her art instead of the meaning of the cloth or make the mistake of looking at a defect instead of the meaning of the cloth, for she could not work uh, the sacred meaning into the cloth itself, nor 
could she sew it on the cloth as though it were only one more ornament this meaning really lies in the beholder and in the beholder's understanding if he and the endless distance of uh, the separation above himself and above his own self has completely forgotten the needlewoman and what was hers to do it was allowable it was proper it was duty it was a precious duty it was the highest happiness of all for the needlewoman to do everything <clears throat> in order to accomplish what was hers to do but it was a trespass against God, an insulting, mis an insulting misunderstanding of the poor needlewoman when someone looked wrongly and saw only uh, what was only there, not to attract attention to itself, but rather so that its omission would not distract by drawing attention to itself. Now I'm going to tie this into the first page of the introduction from Soren. So we're out of the preface finally into page 31. This is uh, Soren's own words. So what is uh, Soren suggesting there? That there's a meaning in the altar cloth. Uh, the work that the needlewoman has done hopefully, hopefully uh, faithfully represents that meaning. But it points to something greater. It's, it's a window or a portal uh, to something better and something pure and something eternal. So this is man and the eternal. It's the introduction, chapter 1. Father in heaven, what is man without thee? What is all that he knows? Vast accumulation, uh, though it be, but a chip fragment if he does not know thee. What is all his striving? Could it even encompass a world but a half-finished work if he does not know thee? Thee, the one who art one thing and who art all. So, so may thou give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing, to the heart's sincerity to receive this understanding, to the will purity that wills only one thing, and prosperity may thou grant perseverance to will one thing, amid distractions, collectedness to will one thing, and suffering patience to will one thing. O thou that giveth both the beginning and the completion, may thou early at the dawn of uh, day give the young man the resolution to will one thing, as the day wanes, may thou give the old man a renewed remembrance of his first resolution, that the first may be like the last, the last like the first, in possession of a life that he has willed only one, only one thing. Alas, but this has indeed not come to pass. Something has come in between. The separation of sin lies in between. Each day... And day after day, something is being placed in between. Delay, blockage, interruption, delusion, corruption. So in this time of repentance, may thou give the courage once again to will one thing. Um, so in the altar cloth, uh, Soren wants us to remember it's not the needlewoman's work that we're looking at. It's a, it's a portal to look at God's work and God's offer to us to offer companionship and relationship and truth and meaning and purpose and all those things that we can chase the world for and the world is always moving and we can't move fast enough to catch it. It's uh, transitory, it's passing, and we have to find our hope in the eternal. And this is the uh, Soren's response to somebody who would be a critic of the needlewoman's work is saying, look at what the, uh, what the altar cloth represents, which is communion with uh, with God, God's offer to us to find peace and resolution and forgiveness in Him. 
And so Soren, in this uh, opening chapter, is calling us to remember to have purity of heart to will one thing. And it's really, really easy in life to create uh, enemies outside of ourselves. Uh, I just read an article that's really interesting. It's the uh, how our brains reward us for having enemies and how nothing unites us, like having a common enemy. That's just the facts. I'm reading a book right now. I read that article, but it also reminded me of uh, a book that I uh, was able to read on Kindle that I decided to download, which is The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich, written by William Shirer. And he was an insider in Germany to some extent. I don't know his full story, but he's writing as if he was there. And he also had access to all the documents that the uh, Nazis were unable to destroy. The Americans got to a lot of these documents in certain locations before the Germans had the ability to destroy them. So he has had his hands on a lot of the internal communication and the memos and the plans and the documents of Nazi uh, Germany. And um, I'm in the rise right now part of uh, this book where it's the rise of Adolf Hitler and his and his fellow henchmen, his cohorts in the uh, Nazi Party, National Socialist Party. Uh, and uh, one thing that Hitler was a master at is coming up with enemies. He uh, was a very, very dynamic speaker, very intelligent, uneducated in a way, but very self-taught, did a lot of reading, uh, but was not particularly successful in school, uh, had that authoritarian streak early on, was alienating to his, his fellow classmates, kind of a, an asshole, but charismatic nonetheless and had these blue piercing eyes. Um, but he uh, he developed a series of scapegoats that unified the German the Germans against the world uh, most of the world at least during World War II and the rise of his power. One of them, of course, was the Jews. The Jews were the scapegoat, and the scapegoat actually comes from the Old Testament that the people in Israel would put their hands on a goat and put their sins on the goat, and the goat would be banished from the community. The goat would be sent out to the desert to die. And that's where the scapegoat word comes from. It's actually biblical. Um, so that was a way of remission of sins. So um, the biblical idea got worked, but Hitler developed um, a series of enemies. So it was the people uh, and government of the Weimar Republic that he perceived had thrown Germany under the bus when it could have won World War I. I felt that they were sold out by political and economic leaders or uh, authorities in Germany, rather than let the army continue to fight, they were betrayed and stabbed in the back by these liberals, these leftists, these communists, these socialists. And to be, be fair, there were a lot of um, communists in Germany at the time. Uh, Soviet Union had been created, and uh, they thought Germany was next, that Germany was who Marx thought would become uh, communist. Uh, so some of Hitler's uh, tactics kind of capitalize on true things. Uh, but Germany was beaten in the war, uh, essentially because America came into it. It had been fought to a stalemate. It was a brutal, awful war, more than most. Uh, when America entered the war, it tipped the balance. If it had been just the European powers and Britain, it would have just ground to a standstill. Uh, Germany was exhausted, but so was France, so was England. Uh, they they had just mauled each other to death, and uh, there, there was no moving forward. But when America came in, we tipped the balance. And unfortunately, what happened in, in the, uh, in the uh, Versailles Treaty is that Germany got very, very poor terms. Rather than be treated as like an equal, like, okay, you lost the war, but 
you know, you were a noble enemy, blah, blah, blah. Here are the terms of surrender. Here are the terms of, like, how we get you back on your feet, whatever. No, France was out for blood, and they imposed a series of um, restrictions and penalties and I don't know the right the right word was, but harsh reparations on the on the German, on the German state, and uh, Hitler blamed uh, those that signed the document, the Versailles Treaty, the Germans' uh, representatives that were there. But they were told by the army to sign it, so it was really the army that did it, which is one of one of this author's points. William Shires, the army had admitted that it was beaten with uh, with America's entrance into the war. It was just enough to tip the balance. <clears throat> we should have never gotten into that war. That was not the war that we needed to be a part of. Uh, Wilson was wrong to do that, and we created the uh, conditions for World War II and the rise of that malignancy of Nazism. That's our fault, to a big degree. Uh, so Hitler had enemies of the Jews. He, he perceived as internationals uh, that were more allied with each other than, than others like Germans. Uh, also, the uh, people that had signed, the government officials, the Weimar Republic, that agreed to sign the Versailles Treaty, but what Hitler didn't say, and what she didn't draw attention to, was the army had told the government representatives to sign that document. So that was another enemy that he had, uh, communist in general, uh, real, real force of evil in uh, Germany and elsewhere, and various other aspects of, uh, of culture, uh, like people that made interest on loans and things, which tended to draw Jewish people because Jewish people were allowed to handle uh, money back in the Middle Ages when Christians were perceived as not being able to touch uh, like financing because it had interest. Like Christians weren't supposed to charge interest to each other. So um, Jewish people became money lenders because that was not forbidden in their religion. And it was kind of a job that was perceived as kind of ursery. Uh, or dirty work, and the Jews kind of got into it because they were allowed to. They were prohibited from many other occupations. So we created kind of the dynamic for Jewish people to develop uh, expertise in finance, and then we got, uh, you know, the, uh, people got mad when Jews became good at it. <laughs> I guess that's the way of saying it. And you still hear that today in our, in our country, whatever. You can go and see that route here, too. Um, so the uh, common enemy, and how this ties into my final point here before I conclude, I've gone a little bit long, is whenever the enemy starts being almost exclusively outside of us, we have a problem because Jesus is very, very clear that the enemy within is the biggest enemy we have. The enemy within will betray our, our own soul. Uh, Jesus said there's nothing that comes outside of man that makes him unclean, but it's what's inside of him that comes outside from inside to outside which makes them unclean because the uh the religious leaders of jesus time were very um, dutiful and very perfunctory about religious ritual as a way of cleansing people now they didn't care what your heart meant and what your heart was thinking it was all about washing and all about doing this and giving donations to the temple and sacrificing animals whether your heart was in it or not and all those things were fine god had ordained all those things as part of his communication humanity and the ultimate fulfillment and the sacrifice of his son uh, but the external ritual itself doesn't have any power it's only the faith within that creates the power so if somebody does those rituals without meaning it or hypocritically or could care less it has absolutely no power to save so somebody can go to confession and confess all their sins but they don't you know they're, they're doing it mechanically and if they're not really truly sorry for them 
then they are, uh, then they, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't matter. And so we have to be very, very careful about seeing the enemy outside of us, the group or the, the Jews or the liberals or the fundamentalist or the, even the Trumpians to some degree. I mean, I think Trump is extremely dangerous because he's using some of the tactics that Hitler used. I'm not saying he's Hitler, but he, he, uh, he is doing what Hitler did in terms of appealing to the working man, the blue-collar rural folks that uh, hate the elites because they perceive the elites have had a, an easy way of it when they've gotten the wrong end of the stick, you know, the, the working class, the blue-collar people. Uh, Trump definitely stoked those fires. And uh, number two, what Hitler did and which Trump did is co-opt the religious people. Uh, make your cause not against uh, the church. Okay, Tell the church I'm your friend. I'm here to help you gain power, esteem, and fight back against the voice, vo uh, forces of decay and your enemies like the liberals and the atheists and the agnostics and the Bolsheviks. And so Hitler um, stoked the animus of the lower blue-collar working classes in Germany, the ones that were susceptible to communism to start with, but he put a national socialist spin on it, uh, while all the t while uh, catering to the industrialists and the business people in Germany that were non-Jews. And he also went to the churches and said, I'm your friend, I'm your ally. And the Catholic Church signed some kind of agreement that as long as you don't mess with the Catholic Church in terms of getting into our politics, we'll leave you alone. So the Catholics were totally co-opted and taken out of any criticism of, of the Nazi regime as an institution. They didn't have anything to say because they agreed to keep their mouth shut. Um, so Trump used those two tools, the animus of the working blue-collar rural people, and co-opted the churches to build his campaign. And I am absolutely convinced that Steve Bannon one of his early architects of his rise, of the Trumpian rise to the presidency, has read this book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It, it seems very apparent to me that they took a page from, uh, from, um, from Hitler's playbook in Mein Kampf and elsewhere in terms of how to actually capture uh, a contingent of society and build upon that foundation to uh, come to power. And Hitler came to power legitimately. He had tried a beer hall push back in the 20s and got put in jail for it and should have been removed from Germany at that point. Uh, uh, somebody, some people were actually killed in it. Uh, but he was in jail. He wrote Mein Kampf and he laid out pretty much what he was going to do. It wasn't a mystery. People thought he was wacko, at least people in the West, at least some people did. But a common enemy. Nothing united the German people like a common enemy. And so look in the mirror. That is 95% of who your, uh, who your enemy is, and then 5% of assorted people out there that might have it out for you. Most people just don't care one way or another about us. That's just the way it goes. Uh, it's very rare in life. If you have five good friends, five to seven really good friends, you've done pretty well in life. And if you have a happy family that loves you and cares about you, uh, you've done better than most. Uh, the, crowd is, the crowd is canine, and the crowd is fickle. But... Regardless, keep at it and have your relationship with God strong. Seek him out. Purify your own heart to want one thing. And then um, it's amazing what that will do to give you confidence and give you peace and give you a sense of placidness despite all the chaos that surrounds us and the cyclone that 
threatens to envelop us all. We have to have peace with God. If we don't have peace with God, we'll never have peace in our in, our, in ourselves or with others or our society. That's it for today.